0: You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. Imagine if Jesus was standing in front of you and you had the chance to ask him one question. What would it be? That'd be a pretty incredible opportunity, wouldn't it? Would you ask him something about heaven? What's it going to be like? What, are we, what all are we going to do there? Would you ask him a question about his life or something that happened during his ministry? Uh, Like, what did he write in the sand when he stooped down and wrote in the sand in the account of the woman caught in adultery? Uh, Maybe you'd ask him to explain the Trinity or answer another really hard theological question that you've always struggled with. I know Brandon would ask him, where's heaven? Uh, Brandon's been trying to figure that out. Uh, Where is heaven? Uh, Or maybe you'd ask him a question about your own life you know, like, what direction should I go? Who should I marry? It'd be great if Jesus was here and we could get his advice or his wisdom or counsel on that. There's probably a million different questions we could think of that we would want to ask of Jesus. And the question we would choose, if we could just choose one, would probably say a lot about us. It would probably reveal a lot about our heart and our desires. And that's basically the scene that we have here in this passage in Acts, in verse 6. Whether they realize it or not, Jesus is about to leave them. He and his disciples are gathered on the Mount of Olives, and he's about to ascend to heaven and no longer be physically there with his disciples. And verse 6 records the last question that the disciples were able to ask Jesus in person. And it says they asked him. So we can assume that they asked him this corporately. They were all wondering this same question. And it's a short question, but it reveals a lot about what the disciples were thinking and hoping for with Jesus. And it's this. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, these disciples are all Jewish men through and through. They are Jews and they think like Jews. So this question is not surprising, but it is a little revealing. They want to know if now is a time when Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel. They're still thinking that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom. And not only will it be an earthly kingdom, but they're thinking it's going to be a nationalistic kingdom It'll be the nation of Israel restored. And they want him to restore it. In other words, to return Israel to the prominence and power and prestige it once held under kings like David and Solomon. So that was the general expectation of the Messiah by the Jews. They thought the Messiah would come and restore Israel as a nation to its former glory. That was part of the uproar in Jesus's ministry. The people had been primed for this by John the Baptist and his teaching ministry. The people were ready for a Messiah to come. And then Jesus does come along doing signs and wonders that no one else could do. And he's saying things that no one else ever says. And you can imagine they're thinking, finally, the Messiah has come. And he's about to overthrow the Roman oppressors and restore the nation of Israel to its rightful place. We see in John 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, that the crowd tries to take him by force and make them their king. They are more than ready to have this king and the nation restored. That's really why there's so much disappointment when Jesus is crucified. To many, when he was crucified, that was their hopes of uh, the nation being restored, being crushed. Their hopes for Israel were crucified on that cross. You know, Luke 24, it records a time right after the resurrection when Jesus, he approaches two men on the road to Emmaus. And it tells us that they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And Jesus asked them what they're talking about. And they begin telling him about how, you know, everything that just happened. There was this prophet, a man named Jesus, who was a prophet and everything looked so promising. But then the chief priests had him killed, and they say this in Luke twenty-four twenty-one. They say, But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. You see, their understanding of a Messiah was almost purely of a political ruler who would restore the nation. Even the twelve disciples didn't understand, and often their intentions were less than noble. And Mark 10 records how James and John asked Jesus if they could have a prominent place, if they could be next to him in the kingdom of God. And then there's several other times where it mentions the disciples arguing with one another over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so even in their hopes of the restored kingdom, they're really self-centered. They are thinking that as Jesus's chosen 12 disciples, that when he's finally in charge, they're going to be large and in charge as well. And so they also think that this earthly nationalistic kingdom is coming immediately. They ask Jesus, are you going to do it now? Is now the time? Their perspective is so limited. It's so temporary and inward focused. But I love that Luke records this question because we'll get to see as we continue through the book of Acts just how radically the disciples change in their understanding of what Jesus is all about. They will gain a global perspective rather than a limited perspective. They'll gain an eternal perspective rather than a temporary perspective. And they'll go from an inward focus to an outward focus. So that's the question. But now look at how Jesus responds. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't respond harshly to them. But he says this, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, it's none of your business. That's what Jesus is telling them there. It's not your business to know when God will restore all things. That's completely under the Father's authority, and he has a time set for it, but it's not for you to know. It's not for you to even worry about. And, you know, people still today can fall into this same pattern as the disciples. They can become obsessed with trying to figure out when is Jesus going to return. You can go all the way back to the year A.D. 500 and find theologians claiming that Jesus was coming back that year. And obviously by now they're off by at least 1,500 years. And it's not always crazy people doing this either. John Wesley thought that it was going to be 1836, the year 1836, that Jesus was going to return uh, Sir Isaac Newton and several others predicted it would be the year 2000. Jerry Falwell predicted in 1999 that it would happen within a decade. But then there are, of course, crazy people too that, that predict that today is going to be the day they go ahead and sell their home and all their possessions and they sit around waiting to be beamed up. And, of course, it never happens. It makes you wonder if those people skipped over verses like this in Acts 1-7 or how about Matthew 24-36. Jesus himself says this about his return. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus says he himself doesn't know. That's information only the Father has. Yet people still think to themselves, I bet I can figure this out. But Jesus tells the disciples, it's not your business. It's not something for you to worry about. Because until that happens, you actually have a job to do. They have a mission And in fact, they have the hardest, most important, most rewarding mission ever given. To be witnesses for Christ. So let's look at this mission. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They'll be his witnesses. A witness to what? They'll be witnesses to his life, death, and resurrection. These apostles witnessed, or these apostles witness was particularly important because they witnessed the risen Christ with their own eyes. They saw him face to face and spoke with him. They were eyewitnesses of, every, of him risen from the grave, which confirmed everything that Jesus taught and said about himself was true. If he could be raised from the dead, then he surely must be the son of God. And so uh, this information isn't something the disciples are meant to keep to themselves like a secret, but it's good news that it's meant to spread across the entire world. Everyone needs to know this. That's what they're witnessing to. And notice that he calls them witnesses. He doesn't say, you will be my expert theologians, you'll be my biblical scholars, or you'll be my expert debaters. He simply says, you'll be my witnesses. What's a witness? It's someone who tells what they've seen or experienced. In a way, we're all really good witnesses. When I eat a really good steak dinner, I'm probably going to tell somebody about it. I'm going to be a witness about how incredible that steak was. When you go to a football game and it ends up being just an incredible football game, maybe an awesome finish, you probably come back telling some of your friends about how awesome the game was. You become a witness for your football team, or if you go to Disney World, when you come back, you're going to tell somebody about it. You're going to tell them what you did, what you ate, what you saw, how much fun you had. You will be a witness for all the amazing things that Disney World is all about. You see, being a witness is actually not that complicated. It's simply sharing what we've experienced. That's what it meant for the first disciples. They were telling people about what they had seen with their own eyes and heard from Jesus. And it's still the same for us today. We're witnesses that Jesus Christ is alive today, and we know it. We know he's alive because he has changed our lives. It's telling someone what Jesus has done in your life and inviting them to experience that same transformation Of course, we certainly want to grow in our theology and knowledge of God. It should be the innate desire of every Christian to know more of God, to grow closer to him. But you don't have to be a scholar to be a witness. All you need to be a witness for Jesus is a relationship with Jesus. Now, let's look back at what Jesus says about this witness. There'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, in that one phrase, we essentially have a table of contents for the book of Acts. This phrase lays out kind of how the story will progress. We'll see as we go through the book that the witness does travel through these different spheres. Chapters 1 through 7 revolves around the church's activity in Jerusalem. And then once we get to chapters 8 through 12, we see the gospel starting to spread out into the broader region of Judea and Samaria. And then starting in chapter 13, we have the first missionary journey of Paul. And then the rest of the book after that follows these missionary journeys, which we see the gospel expand all the way to Rome. So Jesus right here is already breaking down their kind of limited focus on just Israel. He's pointing them beyond Jerusalem, beyond the center of Jewish life. This is a task that will take them across the entire world. But like we mentioned last week how are these guys going to do that it sounds like jesus is wanting to start a movement that will reach across the entire world he wants to start a global movement think about it if if you wanted to start a worldwide movement imagine if you're that ambitious if you wanted to start a company or start a movement that would reach all the way to china all the way to australia all the way to india then you want to assemble a team, and what if you get to pick anyone you want? What kind of person would you recruit to help you achieve that worldwide movement? You're probably not going to go down to the river and pick the first two guys you find fishing on the bank right there. You're probably going to want to recruit some people with some international experience, probably people with some big networks that can open doors, probably people with power and influence and financial backing. You see, Jesus is talking about a mission that is impossible. And by the way, he himself is about to leave, so he's not even going to be there personally with them. But he leaves his mission in the hands of this ragtag group of 11 disciples. Four of them are fishermen. One's a tax collector. One's a zealot, a formerly a zealot, which is basically an anarchist. And then the other occupations aren't even mentioned, so they must not have been too important. And on top of that, these disciples don't have the best track record either. There were times when Jesus would teach them or tell them a parable and they would end up just saying, we don't know what you're talking about. Uh, And then even apart from that, they had shown that under pressure, their faith may crumble like Peter did the night Jesus was betrayed. So how could Jesus leave these men with this task and actually expect it to be accomplished? Well, the key is at the beginning of verse eight. He says, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. You can imagine then being inserted right there. The waiting and receiving from the Holy Spirit has to come before being witnesses. See, Jesus is leaving them, but he's not leaving them alone. He's sending them the promised helper, the Holy Spirit. See, this mission will be impossible in their own power. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the courage. They don't have the passion to do it on their own. That's why the Spirit has to come first. That's why back in verse 4, Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and don't leave until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, comes. They had a mission that was too great to complete on their own. Have you ever heard someone say, God will never give you more than you can handle? I've heard that occasionally. And while it sounds nice, I would say it's absolutely not true. God actually loves to give us more than we can handle. All throughout the Old Testament, God is calling people to do things that are impossible on their own. He tells Abraham that he's going to become a mighty nation. But that's impossible for Abraham to do on his own because he's old, his wife's old, and his wife is also barren. He tells Moses to lead his people out of slavery. but That's impossible on his own because Moses is just one man and he's been on the run for 40 years. But each of those men accomplish their task through the power of God, not on their own power. Then God gives us commands like, be holy as I am holy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Those are impossible commands to carry out on my own. I'm a sinner. I can't perfectly love God and love people all the time. I can't be holy exactly like God is holy. I can't do that on my own. But God loves to give us more than we can handle. And he does it because it forces us to rely on him, to be dependent on him. It forces us to rely on him for our strength, or to, for his strength and his power and his goodness. And he calls us to do impossible things, but he gives us the means through him to accomplish them. And through his Holy Spirit within us. And that's why the disciples have to wait for the Holy Spirit. He is their source of power. Now let's pick back up in verse 9 and see what happens next. It says this, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So as soon as Jesus gives his commission, a cloud lifts him up and takes him away from their sight. This is something supernatural, of course. We often see the cloud appearing in the Old Testament, and it's, and it's a representative of God's manifest presence. It represents his glory. And I, I'd like to picture the disciples just standing there with their mouths wide open, just staring at the sky. Like what just happened? It would be quite a sight. But then it tells us that two men appear who are obviously angels, and they ask them, "Why are you standing there, staring into the sky?" They probably looked a little goofy, and he and they tell them, "He's gonna come back, just like you saw him go." And so uh, they Their question, why are you standing there, implies that you shouldn't just be standing here waiting for him to come back. Because after all, there's a mission, there's work to do in between then and now. They've been left with an enormous mission to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And in Acts, we'll see the gospel spread all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. But of course, that's not the end of the earth. In a way, you could. Think of North America. You could think of here in Stapleton being the end of the earth from Jerusalem. You see, this mission wasn't given just to these first disciples. This is a mission given to all future followers of Christ as well, including you and me. We're still called and still commanded to be his witnesses. We're called to live on mission. And let me explain what I mean when I say live on mission. Too often we can see commandments like the Great Commission to make disciples of every nation. Or commands like this one in Acts telling us to be his witness to the end of the earth. And we can be tempted to think that's just meant for people that are called to be pastors or evangelists or missionaries. Like Those must be the ones that those passages are talking about. And we can try to let ourselves off the hook, but that's actually not the case. In fact, you could almost argue that it's the other way around. Ephesians 4.11 says that God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who are the saints? The saints are you and me. It's, It's every believer. Those are the saints. The saints are the ones who are to do the work of the ministry. The call and command to make disciples and to be witnesses is for every single believer. To live on mission doesn't mean you have to go as a missionary to the other side of the world. But it means you live with a mission mindset every day right where you're at in life. It means you live on mission in your home first. If you have family members that don't know God, how are you being a witness to those in your own home or your extended family? It means you live on mission at work. How are you being a witness for Jesus to those who you see every day at work, it means you live on mission in your school or on your sports team or in your friend friend groups. How are you being a witness to them about how Jesus has changed your life? See, it's a mission mindset, and that may not come instantly to you. This will take some training for most of us to kind of reorient our mind around this. But too often we can car- car- can we can. Compartmentalize our Christian life into just Sundays and Wednesdays uh, as if the other days of the week and Saturday are just for us to do whatever we want with. But we must train ourselves to live every single day, every second of the day with this mission mindset, knowing what we've been called to do. And I'm thankful that this church has a history of missions, really, from its very beginning. In 1948, this church was founded through the mission efforts of people at First Baptist Bay Minette, And right here, I have the, uh, the very first business meeting notes. Um, it does still exist. And, uh, and in September 12th of 1948, they had the very first business meeting. Um, and it says they did it for the purpose of calling a preacher. And so they started a church before they even had a preacher. That was, and that tells me that they knew these people, these heathens down here in Stapleton, it doesn't say that. That's that's my paraphrase. They need Jesus so bad that we just need to go ahead and start a church, then we'll find a preacher. And so they came together for that purpose to start a gospel work here in Stapleton in 1948. And that just I love that history that this church was started by people with a mission mindset and within 2 years the church actually had 75 members. So we see that the gospel came and the gospel spread. And I pray that we as a church would operate with that same mission mindset. If, if those commands to be witnesses are for God's people individually, then those commands are for the church corporately as well. See, the local church is God's vehicle for the spreading of the gospel. So how are we as a church living on mission? That's what I'm talking about with this, with this reach campaign and everything. How are, how are we living on mission as a church? How are we being a witness in our community? And to me, that begins right here in Stapleton. Stapleton is our Jerusalem in a sense. How can we leverage our resources, our time and energy, our finances to reaching our neighbors here in Stapleton? How can we reach the kids and faculty at the school literally right next door to us? This is our Jerusalem. That's where we start, but we don't end there. How can we then be witnesses beyond our Jerusalem? How can we leverage our resources for the spread of the gospel in our county, in our state, in our country, and even beyond that in the world? And Let me say that being a, being a church on mission has to involve more than just sending money to the cooperative program. It has to involve more than just taking up offering for missions, which is great and that is effective, but I think we can do more. We can actually go ourselves. We can make personal connections with missionaries and church planners and support them personally um, in more than just finances. And I pray that that God would even raise people up from within our own congregation to go, to start churches in other places in our county that need the gospel, a gospel witness and where they don't already have it. I pray that God would call up people, raise up people from our church body to be his witnesses in faraway places. And parents and grandparents, we should encourage that. We should pray that God would use our children to be his witnesses, even if that means taking them far away from us across the world. Like what if the next great missionary is currently a baby in the nursery? What if the next great church planter is currently a middle school boy? That's kind of scary, but what if? (laughs) Are we as a church body operating with a mission mindset that would encourage that? That would actually make that young person think that maybe God could use me like he's used people before? Are we encouraging the next generation to live on mission and go wherever God would lead them? That's going to be a constant challenge for our hearts as we continue through this book of Acts. Are we living on mission daily, right where God has placed us? Are we being his witnesses to how God has changed our lives? And the good news is that we do it through his power, through his Holy Spirit. Knowing we we do it knowing that we don't do it on our own power or authority, but we do it through the authority of the risen Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit within us. And that's good news. Would you pray with me?